Go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to the book of James. It's been a while since we've met together because of snow and because of the Y being closed last week. And so I'll remind you that we're in James chapter 3. And I actually don't have the page number of what it's in in the Bibles and the chairs. So you're uh, on your own unless somebody wants to shout that out. Again, that was James chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 13 through 18 this morning. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us through James. God, we thank you that you sent your spirit to empower him and inspire him to write this letter to Christians like us who struggle to live the way you call us to live, to live out the implications of our faith in Christ in a world that is broken. God, we recognize the importance of wisdom and our great need of it from You. And so we pray this morning that as we look at what James has to teach us, what, what You have to teach us through James about wisdom, I pray that You would just send Your Spirit to move us beyond ourselves, to reveal sin in us, to challenge us and convict us and to show us the ways in which we think we are wise, we are not wise. Because wisdom comes from You. Jesus, we thank You for what You've done on our behalf, for living the life that we couldn't, for dying as our substitute and for purchasing grace and redemption and forgiveness for us. We know that it's only because of You that we can gather and worship and study Your Word together. And so it's in Your name we pray. Amen. All right, as you probably picked up on, uh, this passage today is about two kinds of wisdom. And and really, it's not two different kinds of wisdom. It's it's wisdom and then this thing that, uh, that we have that we might point to as wisdom, but as James is going to show us, isn't really wisdom. In fact, it's the opposite of wisdom. It's the opposite of uh, the gospel and what God has done for us in it. And so, at the very beginning, he throws out this question. He says, Who is wise in understanding among you? James' goal here is to get people in the church that he's writing to to say, that's me. I'm wise and I'm understanding, but we should hear 
Admiral Akbar on this and recognize that this question is a trap. Right? He wants us to say yes. He wants us to say, I'm wise, I'm understanding, because he follows it up with this statement. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. This is fairly similar to what he's had to say to us about faith. He's saying, if you think you're wise, prove it by what you do. This is just like what Jesus says in the Gospels when he is talking to the scribes and Pharisees and Jewish religious leaders and they're challenging him for what he does and he says that wisdom is justified by her deeds. He's saying wisdom proves itself in action and that's exactly what James is saying to us. He's saying don't don't say that you're wise. Don't say that you're understanding. Show it in the meekness of wisdom. The works in the meekness of wisdom. So right at the very beginning, we get something from him about what true wisdom really is. It is meek. It is humble. And I think that this is hugely important for us to get before we move any further in the passage, to recognize what humility is and how wisdom expresses itself in humility. So humility is, uh, I think at its most basic level, it's us or it's an attitude in us that's produced by a right understanding of who God is and who we are. When we get who He is, and when we get who we are in light of who He is, then that's going to produce in us this attitude of meekness and humility, which is going to impact the way we do everything. First of all, we recognize that God is perfect and holy and blameless. That's who He is. Then we get who we are. Right? We're not that. We're not perfect. We're imperfect. We're not holy. We're unholy. We're not blameless. We are worthy of lots of blame. And when we get that, and when we live in light of that, it affects the way we treat people all around us. And it's important to recognize, too, that humility isn't uh, like self-deprecation. Right? It's not me saying I'm this horrible person. I think that sometimes when we emphasize God's holiness and our unholiness, we can walk around with this attitude of, you know, we're just worthless people. But we're not worthless people. We've been bought with the precious blood of our Savior. We've been redeemed. We've been made new. We're new creations. We're all these things that he tells us we are because of what Christ has done for us. And so it's not self-deprecation. It's not a lack of confidence. It is confidence in light of who he is and what he's done. It's a a boldness that expresses itself in this attitude of meekness and humility before others. And wisdom produces that in us. Produces good deeds and humility. He goes on to talk about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He's going to emphasize the opposite of what this looks like. And One more thing about humility. Tim Keller has this great quote where he says, humility isn't thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. Right? It's this ending of this preoccupation with who we are and what we're doing. Because the reality is, if we're thinking that we're horrible people, right? If we're insecure, if we're, uh, you know, lack confidence, that person is just as prideful as the overtly arrogant and boastful person. Because they're both focused on themselves instead of on him. And so humility, it's not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. It's thinking about him more and who he is and what he's done for us. And that produces these wise good deeds in our lives. But the opposite 
Right? If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is where he's calling out those people who want to answer yes to that question, who want to say, I'm wise, I'm understanding. He's saying, no, you're not. Don't boast, don't be false to the truth, don't lie about who you are. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Because these things are the opposite of this humble, meek wisdom that the gospel should produce in us. And the reality is we should be people who don't have this bitter jealousy. Right? The only person that can be jealous and be right is God. Right? God deserves worship. He deserves glory. He deserves fame and accolades for who He is. We don't deserve any of that. He's the only one that can be jealous and it be a good thing that should be celebrated. If we're going to be jealous at all, it should be for him. We should be upset that he doesn't get what he should get from people. And the reason why that's the case is because we know that God doesn't, isn't owed anything. Right? The word says that he made everything. The fullness of the earth is his. That's what the Psalms say. In uh, James, at the very beginning, right, he says, every good and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down to us from the Father of lights. Everything that we have, we get from Him. Period. Everything around us, all that we see, all that we are, everything that we get in our life, it is from Him. And so, we don't have a right or a claim or an entitlement to be jealous for it. Because it's not ours. It's His. It's a gift to us from Him. And so when we have this kind of bitter jealousy that James is talking about, we're showing that we don't understand who He is. We don't understand who we are. We don't get the fact that all that we have is given to us from Him. It's a gift. It's grace. It also shows that we don't understand what we really deserve. What does God's Word say that we deserve for our sin and rebellion against God. The wages of sin is death. If we want to be jealous for something and think, I deserve that, I should have that, that should be mine, there's one thing that we can be that about. God, give me death. Give me what I deserve. But I don't get jealous for that. And I'm guessing that none of you get jealous for that. Right? We don't walk around talking about how we're entitled to a torment and death. We say, I want this. I want a better job. I want a better house. I want more money in my bank account. I want a nicer car. I want all of these things. I deserve that. The guy across the street from me has those things. He's not even a believer. Why don't I have those, God? When the reality is, we should say, I've got a house. I've got a wife. I've got four little girls. I've got cars that run. All of those things are better than weeping and gnashing of teeth. Even on days when those girls make you want to do those things. 
being jealous shows that we don't understand who God is and what he's done for us. Jealousy is not produced by an understanding of the gospel. It's not an outworking of the gospel. And neither is selfish ambition. Right? Selfish ambition is also contrary to the good news because uh, it's not about our ambition. Right? We're called in God's word in light of what he's done for us in the Gospels, Jesus calls the disciples to himself, and then he gives them an ambition. He sends them out. He says, go out, do what you've seen me doing, say what you've heard me saying, and preach the good news. And then at the end of the Gospels, in Matthew 28, he takes that commission to those 12 guys, and he expands it to everyone. That's the ambition we're supposed to have. Our ambition is to go and make disciples of all nations. It's not upward mobility at our jobs. It's not to get our kids into the right schools. It's not to, you know, be the best father or be the best husband or be the best coach or whatever. Those things are things that we should aspire to, but because of what he's done for us, because of the mission that he's put us on. We're not entitled to selfish ambition. We're entitled to gospel-centered, Christ-centered, God-centered ambition. That's what happens when he buys us. He takes away our right to live a certain kind of life and gives us his ambition for us. It doesn't mean we can't have nice things. It doesn't mean we're not going to have a nice life. It could mean that. But what it means is that our Ability, our right to say, I want this, I want that, is taken away. And it's replaced with him putting a desire in us to want what he wants, to desire what he desires, to live our lives for his ambition for us. And the reality is, it's going to be better. Because he knows what's best for us. And his desires for us are bigger than our desires for us. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are contrary to the gospel. They aren't wisdom. So James is saying, if you have those things, don't boast, don't lie, don't be false to the truth. This is where he fleshes this out more in verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. He's moving forward in his description of this, this false wisdom. And again, these terms that he uses, right? he's progressing, but each of them relate to how this wisdom is contrary to the gospel. Right? In the gospel, Jesus comes down here. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, and you know, if you've been here for a while, we went through it, and we saw again and again and again that there's this tension in the Gospels between heaven and earth. Right? They're in conflict with each other. Don't store up treasures for yourselves on earth. Lay up treasure in heaven. Right? Jesus talks about the rulers of this earth. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. And what happens when God sends Jesus down here is that it represents an invasion. God's kingdom has come down here. And he tells his disciples to go out and preach the good news of that kingdom. 
And so when we have this false wisdom that James is talking about, he says it's earthly. It's living our lives in light of this temporal world. It's acting as if he never came. We don't have to live in light of what he's done. We don't have to live in light of his kingdom. We can live just in light of this world. We can do what the world expects us to do. We can do what the culture expects us to do. We can think like they think and talk like they talk and do what they do. It doesn't matter that he brought the kingdom of heaven here. It doesn't matter that he died to inaugurate that kingdom. It doesn't matter that he called us to be those who go out in the world and advance that kingdom. Instead, we'll just be earthly. Same thing with unspiritual. It's acting as if he never sent the Holy Spirit to us. We don't have to live our lives in submission to him. We don't have to surrender to his conviction in our lives. We can just do what we would do if we were unspiritual people. If he had never given us that gift. We don't have to live in submission to him. We don't have to be full of the Holy Spirit. We can be full of unspiritual wisdom. And the last one is the most inflammatory thing that James could say about this kind of wisdom. He says it's demonic. On the cross, Jesus died to free us from the power of Satan. Right? His ascension, it represents this, this victory over the forces of evil. It's him saying, I've beaten them all. That's what we get from God's word. But when we have this bitter, this bitter jealousy and this selfish ambition, this false wisdom, it is demonic is what James is saying. We're living as if we're still enslaved to those powers that he freed us from. We're thinking and acting and doing what we would have done if they were still directing the course of our lives. Instead of doing what he's called us to do, instead of living as if his spirit is in us, instead of living as if he has freed us from all of those things which he has, the reality is if we have this kind of false wisdom that James is talking about, we're living as if none of the stuff in God's Word ever happened. Or we're living as if we know that it's happened and it just doesn't matter to us. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice, not just some kinds of vile practices, but every vile practice. And for disorder here, he's not talking about chaos. He's talking about disorder within the body of Christ. That's what happens when we operate in light of this false, fake wisdom. This is what happens when we have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It distorts and disrupts the body of Christ. The church. And so that's not something we want to happen. We don't want that kind of disconnection here. And so, one thing that I want to say in light of that is, you know, there are times where we as elders will have people come to us and they'll say, you know, I just, I just don't feel connected to the body. I feel like there's, and they don't use these words, but what they're saying is there's disruption. There's discord there. I think that our 
tendency as people in an individualistic culture is to say it's, it's their fault. You know, if they would call me, if they would reach out to me, if they would serve me, if they would, you know, do all of these things that I need them to do, then I wouldn't feel that disconnect with the body. I would have the unity and the experience that God's Word says we should have as members of a church, as part of the body of Christ. But what James says here is that where these things take place, that's what produces that kind of disconnect. And so whenever we feel that way, the first thing we should do is look at ourselves. We should wonder whether we're living in a wise way or whether we're harboring some sort of bitter jealousy or selfish ambition. And really, having those kinds of conversations show that that's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about what we need and what we want and what matters to us and what we're entitled to. Instead of thinking, how can I serve the body? How can I encourage my brothers and sisters? How can I be authentic in community with them? Wisdom expressed in humble works is going to work against this kind of disruption that occurs in the body as a result of this false wisdom. Same thing with every vile practice. Right? If you're struggling with a specific sin in your life or lots of specific sins in your life. For James, these are but symptoms. The root's what needs to be addressed. And the root is this kind of unwise misunderstanding of who God is and what He's done for us. That's what needs to be fixed. Because then that's going to express itself outward in this meekness of wisdom. Verse 17 is where he moves, right? He's been spending all this time talking about this false wisdom. And as I was reading this, I thought, you know, why doesn't he just say, you know, false wisdom is bad. Let me talk to you for seven verses about what wisdom really is. And I think the reason why is because James has the same problem that I have. And that's that, and you have. That we know a whole lot more about what wisdom is not than we do about what wisdom is. We have a lot more experience with false wisdom than we do with true wisdom. But he's still going to tell us what it is. He says it's, first of all, it's from above. This goes back to what he said to us in James chapter 1, right? He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. If you don't have wisdom, ask him, because that's where it comes from. Wisdom comes from above, right? This isn't earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. This is wisdom that we get from God. If you want true wisdom, that's where it comes from. And he says it's pure. He means here that it's morally pure. It's holy. It's been sanctified. And then he gives us this list. And even though it doesn't seem like it, there's a whole lot of order to this list for James. The first three things, they all start with the same letter. right? He's, he's using alliteration, which... Uh, we don't have because it's translated from a different language into English. But So it's peaceable, gentle, open to reason. So there's these first three, and they're kind of talking about how wisdom responds in conflict. And the next ones are both something that's it's, it's fullness, full of mercy, full of good fruits. Those are the next two. And then the last three all start with the same letter as well. Impartial, uh, sorry, the last two. Impartial and sincere. And so he's talking about what Wisdom really is, and he's describing it to us in this very intentional way. So the first three, peaceable, 
gentle, open to reason. Here he's talking mostly about how wisdom responds in conflict, and that's because that's where he's going next. He's going to move from wisdom to talk about this conflict that happens in the body. So he says that wisdom is peaceable. It's peaceful. Right? If you're a wise person, if you have this wisdom from above, you will be a peaceful person. That doesn't mean that you avoid conflicts. Right? This isn't running from fights. When Jesus uh, gave the Beatitudes in the Gospels, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Right? It's not about keeping peace. It's about making peace. It's, it's healing wounds uh, and pursuing not just an agree-to-disagree kind of attitude, but a unity and harmony with people. Right? Agree-to-disagree is possibly my least favorite expression in the entire ling- English language. What it means for me most of the time is, I don't care that you're wrong. Either this issue isn't important enough to me or you're not important enough to me to try to convince you that I'm right. So let's just agree to disagree and we'll go our separate ways. That's why I don't use it very much. But that's what we mean most of the time. It's, it's not, let's pursue unity in Christ at the expense of third order or minor issues. That's not what we mean. We mean... I don't want to talk about this anymore. Being peaceable, being peaceful, being a peacemaker isn't agree to disagree. It's a commitment to unity in the gospel above everything else. And a willingness to persevere in relationships with people even when there are significant things that you disagree on. And wisdom produces that. Wisdom isn't out for its own. It's not selfish. It's not bitter. It's not jealous. And so it's not going to be, you know, overly committed to its own position. It's going to be willing to yield. And that's what he talks about next when he says gentle. It doesn't mean soft or timid. What he means is willing to yield in a fight. I think the comparison here is between like a rock and uh, like a memory foam mattress. Right? You fall on a rock it's going to be very uncomfortable. You fall on a mattress, it's going to give. It's going to yield. It's going to be accepting of where you're at and your girth. That's what wisdom is. right? Whenever you see someone and feel like, you know, we could pull up a Facebook feed right now and find 27 examples of this. People who are just unwilling to give in. They might not even have a dog in the fight, but they will not yield. That's not wisdom. That's not rightness or correctness. It's, I don't know, ridiculous. Wisdom is a willingness to give up your own way uh, for unity. And that doesn't mean, right, that it doesn't mean we don't fight for truth. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying if someone says Jesus isn't God, you say, I yield. I give in. I'm gentle. You stand up for truth, but you argue in a way that is gentle. The next one, open to reason. Right? This is the same kind of idea. It's a recognition that you might not know everything that you think you know. Dr. Todd, who teaches at the college, he has this saying that he says again and again uh, about college students, but I think it applies to everyone. He says, 
you will never be smarter than you are right now. And I wish he would have said that to me when I was a student and I would have understood it. Because I look back, you know, now and think about all the theological discussions that I had when I was a student and I, man, I was right. I knew my theology better than anyone. And if you would have tried to argue with me, I would have proven you wrong six different ways and had fun doing it. And I've changed. Not just how I argue, but what I argue for. I've changed what I thought I knew because I found out something that I didn't know. I can look back and think of conversations that I have and think, man, why did I have division with that brother over that thing that doesn't matter, that I don't even agree with anymore? And I know now that five years from now, I'm going to be able to do the same thing. And the worst part about it is it's all going to be recorded. So I can go back and I can say, oh my goodness, I said that to a room full of people. Open to reason means that we recognize that we aren't 100% wise. Because He is. Our wisdom comes from Him and we get a small fraction of it. And that should impact the way that we interact with people. It should impact the way that we talk to people. It should impact the way we approach conflict with people. We don't know it all and we never will. The next two ideas are full. Full of something. You're full of mercy and you're full of good fruits. And really it's a fullness of mercy that produces a fullness of good fruits. Mercy is it's seeing someone in their helplessness, in their need, and being moved to action on their behalf. It's seeing someone recognizing they can't do anything to help themselves, and instead of saying, you know, the untruth, God helps those who help themselves, which is the opposite of the gospel, we live out the gospel and do something to help them. Fullness of mercy produces fullness of good fruits. If you think you're full of mercy and you're not full of good fruits, you're really full of something else. You can't have mercy and not have good fruit. It works outwardly, automatically from us. Because mercy pushes us to action. Really, understanding the gospel produces mercy, which produces this outward fruit for others. That's expressed in wisdom. The next two, uh, impartial and sincere. These have to do with the idea of just authenticity. Right? When you're impartial, you are the same person with everyone. Whether they're rich, whether they're poor, whether they're black, whether they're white, whether they're old or young, male or female, you act the same way towards everyone. And you know, you've got the first half of this too, so that would be a wise way you act towards them. It doesn't mean you're a jerk to everyone. Although you could be an impartial jerk, I guess. Impartial means everybody gets the same person from us. And sincere is the same way. I think the difference here is impartialness has to do with how we act towards others when we're around them. 
Sincerity means that we're the same person with people as we are without people. It means you're the same guy at your Bible study that you are uh, when you're in your room alone with a computer. It means you're the same girl uh, with people when you're having a conversation with them as you are when you, you know, don't tell other people about what that conversation was about later. It means everybody gets the same us and we're that same person with people as we are without people. Being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus means we follow him wherever we are, even when no one is around. And that's what wisdom produces in us. And he finishes this whole section off with this transition between wisdom to what he's going to talk about next time, which is conflict. He says, a harvest of righteousness. Righteousness here is godly living. It's living the kind of life that God requires of us. It's sown in peace by those who make peace, right? God produces wisdom in us, and wisdom produces godly living. That's what James is trying to communicate to these people. Not having wisdom means that we're going to produce the opposite of the kind of life that God desires for us. It means we're going to produce the opposite of the kind of life he requires for us. But when he gives us wisdom, it flows outwardly into these righteous, good acts that he's called us to. Flows outward into humility and meekness and just a loving relationship with people around us. And so, if you're here this morning and you've heard you know, these descriptions of this false wisdom and this description of true wisdom and you think that you're someone that would have fallen for James's trap. Which, to be honest, if you catch me on a day where I'm not thinking about trick questions and you say, are you a wise person? I'm probably going to say, yeah. Because there are days where I think that I am. But hearing these things, I know that there are many, many times throughout those days where I look more like this false wisdom than I do look like this true wisdom. But the great part is, is that's you and that's me. We're in good company. Remember back to James 1. James assumes two things about wisdom. He assumes, first of all, that we are going to lack it. He starts the whole thing off by saying, if any of you lacks wisdom. And then the second thing he assumes is that if we ask God, he'll give it to us. Wisdom comes from above. We don't have it naturally. We don't produce it naturally. We don't naturally incline ourselves toward wisdom. And that's why wisdom is a picture of the gospel. Right? It's God giving us and doing for us what we can't do or get for ourselves. I can't produce wisdom. You can't produce wisdom. But James says that God is generous and he gives to those who ask for it. And so our response to this, to hearing what James says about wisdom, is not we go out and we be wise. It's not go out and conduct yourselves better in conflict. It's not go out and you know, fill yourself up with mercy and fill yourself up with good fruit. It's not go out and be impartial and be sincere. It's not go and do. It's go and ask. 
our response to this is to recognize we're not as wise and as understanding as we think we are. And the only way that changes is if he changes us. And so, that's what I want for me. And I hope that's what you want for you, to be people who are continually and consistently asking God to give us wisdom. Because there's no other way we're going to get it. Without his work in us, we're going to keep being selfish. We're going to keep being bitter. We're going to keep looking like idiots on Facebook and in conversations with people. The only way we change is if he changes us. It doesn't mean that we're not required to be obedient. I'm not saying that. We absolutely are. But that's produced through him working in us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word clearly tells us the ways in which we fall short of who you are. The ways in which we fall short of your standard. Thank you that your word tells us that we deserve death for our sin, for our rebellion against you. We thank you that you give us grace. You don't give us what we deserve. That you count Jesus' life for ours. His standard keeping, his character, his life counts for ours. And his death counts for ours. We don't have to pay the penalty for our falling short because he's paid it for us. We thank you that you continue to give us grace. Not just by forgiving our sins, but by producing in us the kind of life that you desire for us. We thank you that your word doesn't just call us to wisdom, but it promises that you will give it to us when we ask. I pray that you would help us to be people who long and yearn for it in prayer. That we would long to be wise people so that our lives would be godly and produce good fruit, so that people can see that good fruit and give glory to you. We pray that you would just continue to work in us through the rest of the service, through the Lord's Supper, through responding to you in worship, that you would just send your spirit to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.